if I can, I like to mess with a few different mics at first to try to find what works, depending on how experienced they are. Sometimes if they're fairly green, I, I really hate to have them getting bored. If I see them starting to get bored, I feel like I'm losing the battle and not doing my job. So I'm not going to make somebody wait forever to get somewhere. But I would, if, I, if budget allows and time allows, try a few different mics until you find the best one. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW. Or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Nick Worley, a musician engineer who grew up in Nashville around recording studios. His father, Paul, was a session guitarist, producer, and studio owner. In Nick's early teens, he developed a love for blues, rock, country, and jazz, and he spent seven years in Athens, Georgia, playing guitar in bands, touring around the East Coast and working landscape jobs. He was the guy in the band with the PA who enjoyed the sonic part of things as well as playing. So Nick moved back to Nashville in 2004 and got a job being a runner at Blackbird Studio early in its existence. By the way, I noticed that you had written it as Blackbird Studio. Was this like so early that they only had one studio at that point? Well, we had the A, the A room was just finished being built out yeah. to what it is now, right when I got there. But I believe technically it still is studio. Is it really? I think because there was like an art studio in California that was called Studios. All right. Well, I'm derailing our intro here, but but um, I could be wrong. You're you're probably right, man. You worked there. Uh, So you were at Blackbird Studio early in its existence, and then you eventually led to helping Rolf Zweep start Blackbird Audio Rentals, and that's one of the places I remember us first meeting Mm -hmm. when I used to call you up and be like, "Yeah, this is Nick." You know. you built a one-car garage in East Nashville in a, into a tiny home studio and began recording bands at night and on the weekends while working at Blackbird all day. Uh, Nick was recording mostly indie stuff, rock bands, and artists that he met through playing in bands. Eventually, this became more than just a hobby, and in early 2014, 
Nick decided to go out and take a chance at making records for a living. He began tracking in larger facilities, Welcome to 1979 was one of your favorites, and finished the rest of the records at his home studio. In 2017, Nick and his friend from Blackbird Days, Leland Elliott, had the opportunity to combine their gear and experience and move into a building within the House of Blues studio complex. There, they created their own vibey recording facility, Weatherman Sound, where they currently record music in a variety of genres. 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 Trying to say that (laughs) word right. Please welcome Nick Worley to Recording Studio Rockstars. Nick, my man, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Dude, pleasure to have you here at the Toy Box. We're standing in the, uh, the control room, and you were sort of enjoying seeing the MCI console for the first time. I know you're a fan of a lot of you know, vintage recording consoles, older gear and tape machines and stuff like that. You know, you mentioned working at Welcome to 1979 a lot. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit more about getting started out and recording yourself. Um, You don't have to spend too long there. Briefly tell us about growing up around a studio and maybe how that connected to having an appreciation for some of this older recording technology for you now. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I grew up, my dad had a studio Growing up, called the Money Pit. He named it after that. Uh, you remember that Tom Hanks movie? Dude, we were just talking about it this morning. Really? Yeah, I was just interviewing Russ Long, and and we mentioned the Money Pit. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so that's what it was called because obviously studios can, you know, kind of are like that. And um, so I was around there a lot, you know, and eventually worked the front desk and runner, coffee maker guy, and all that kind of stuff. But even from you know, being like three years old, I was in a place called Audio Media a lot. I'd spend a lot of weekends in various Treasure Isle, I remember. And when I'd rent gear mm-hmm. for Blackbird, I'd have like deja vu walking into some of these rooms because like, oh, I was here as a kid and I used to try to climb that stairwell and there was the door was always locked up there and it pissed me off, you know. That's wild. But uh, so, and I was around it a lot, kind of knew the vibe and knew some things about it. And then- um, But you kind of cared about it too, right? Yeah, cared about it and, it and it seemed like a normal job. It didn't seem like some unattainable- uh, sexy thing that would be impossible. You know, it was like, this is what the grownups do, ho-hum, you know, it was cool. And I, and I loved all the stories they told and how much fun they seemed to have at work uh, and all of that. So I guess it makes sense that it, the music thing bit me pretty hard. And uh, and the playing side of it is really what I was doing for a long time. And, and then the engineering part of this at some point bit me too. It, did, it really, when I was a kid, I didn't think that I would ever go into this side of it. Well, it was pretty wild. I mean, when I started out in this, like I grew up around some music and stuff through family, but nobody in my family was doing recording. And, you know, I didn't know anything about this being an actual like career path or job thing that I could do one day, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But so talk a little bit about, you know, the, the analog side of things. And I know that you sort of gravitated towards, or at least enjoyed recording to analog tape. Um, How did that all come about to be interesting to you later? Really, all the tape I've done has been at 79. Um, 79, a.k.a. Welcome, welcome to welcome 1979. To Sorry, guys. So go back, uh, rock stars, and listen to my episode with Chris Mara and Cameron Henry, both from Welcome to 1979. Great guys. I'll do that, too. All right, cool. I love those guys. But uh, you know, I always liked tape and the sound of tape and was fascinated with it. But I definitely learned on Pro Tools uh, all this stuff. You know, The first stuff I ever recorded on was like at somebody's place on ADAT. I think, yeah, and then that guy had a tape machine. We did some, but I wasn't recording. It was like my band. Um, and, you know, to, to uh, you know, I, I was taught how to align a machine, but never had to do it often enough to really, 
you know, I never owned one. You Dude, know? you missed out, man. Aligning the machine, that's part of the, you know, the pleasure of using tape. Yeah, I could probably do it, but I'd like have to watch a YouTube video or two now. It, I, but, I just have to book an extra day. An extra whole day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 79, you know, they, I was working with a band, Willie and the Giant. They wanted to go over and track there. And I said, sure, cool, cool place. And I was like, man, tape, that sounds fun. That sounds cool. And Chris was like, oh, we got it all covered. It's, you know. It's cool. And it was easy. And they kind of, they're really pro around there and they have great assistants and a great staff. And it took me a minute to uh, get used to hitting the levels and kind of, it's different. You were like, you did a move and then you turned to Chris and you're like, hey, uh, where, how do I hit undo? Yeah, there's no Apple Z. There's no playlist, <laughs> which I love. I love that whole thing about it where you don't, everybody gets together as a band and gets tight because there's not a million do-overs and it's just... It happens a little slower because you have to rewind and stuff, but somehow that makes it happen faster in the long run because everybody's more focused, I yeah, think. do-overs are for golf with friends, right? Yeah, mulligans. Mulligans. And you still get a lot of mulligans as a team, or, you know, you can still go over. You just have to go you can, over. You can perform. You can do another take yeah. of the whole band. Yeah, but if you've already filled up your tracks, if you want to do something again, you have to decide to go over what you just did. So you have to think about it. And really make it because a lot of times with Pro Tools, that'll be great. But oh, no, 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 let me do it 15 more times. That yeah, it's like right. uh, to just kind of, I don't know why we're talking about golf, but to go with the golf analogy a little more. It's like imagine if you just kept running, you you, you didn't like your shot, so you, you shot another golf ball, but then you weren't sure which shot you were going to like better. So then you just keep keep two scores running, and then you get to the end of the golf game and you've got like 20 golf scores going and you're, you're trying to figure out which hole you're going to piece together you're from every single your golf. one. <laughs> you know, what happens is you miss out drinking a pint with everybody over in the 19th hole. And yeah. So that's, that's same with the music business, you know? So you, are you a golfer? Um, not enough to be making dumb golf jokes. <laughs> well, I, I like to fish. I like to bass fish. So I end up with a lot of fishing analogies. And, All right. Yeah. So give us a fishing analogy. Well, then what for we're talking about, maybe, you know, you fish the cast that you just made because you can make a cast then you'll float down a little bit and see another log and go, oh, I could make a perfect, look, that's just a perfect spot to cast over there. There's a fish there, but, you know, your line will never be in the water if you keep looking at the next one and you don't, sometimes you just got to fish the one you, you got to play the cards you got. You right. Know? And fish don't jump out of the water to um, take a bite of your line. I mean, they used to in Tennessee back in the day, right? Yeah, but not, not so. anymore, right? No, not anymore. They don't do it for me. You know? <laughs> so you got to leave your fish and you got to leave your line in the water. I like that analogy. Never caught a fish with my line, not in the water. Never. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. All right. Well, so uh, I like to ask our guests to share an inspirational quote to kind of kick off the podcast. And we're getting to this one pretty quickly on yours. So do you have anything you want to kind of start us off with? Uh, my favorite one of those is Cowboy Jack Clement. Somebody might have already shared this one, but we're in the fun business. Uh, if we're not having fun, we're not doing our job. Nice. I think Matt Rossbang mentioned something along sense. those lines too. And then I think another cowboy quote is, you know, records are never finished. They're just abandoned. Mm-hmm. Which is good, but I think we need to be reminded of these things. That's why they're inspirational quotes. Yeah. That's why we have them, that so one, we can remember them later and, and finally understand it and learn it. Make it true. Um, what are some ways that you feel like you see records not being fun in the studio sometimes? Well, sometimes you get people that haven't done it a lot, and it kind of seems uncomfortable. Maybe they're used to playing live, and they get nervous, and they sort of seem like they want to get out of here as quickly as they can. And, and, uh, it's just, a, it's just a whole different muscle to, 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 to exercise than, uh, 
than live. And I, I think if you lighten it up, you know, make some jokes, make sure it's fun for everybody, then I think the lighter you can keep the mood, even if it's really serious music, um, people, you know, and even I, like, I can have a tendency sometimes to, just to take all this stuff way too damn seriously because it right. is something we take serious and we don't want to mess around. And I'm not saying that it's to be sloughed off or blown off. But once you're at a certain level of seriousness, then it's really fun, you know? And, and it should be, if you don't enjoy doing this, then nobody's going to enjoy listening to them. Well, sometimes, you know, hearing you say that, I feel like the seriousness comes from our own um, self-criticism sometimes. Oh, you God. know, like, like if we're way into this, then we really want to do a better job ourselves. And that seriousness and that kind of stick up your assness, which is is the way it can seem to other people at times, yeah. that like translates out into the session, even if you don't mean it to. You know, you there's many it. times where like I'm running around trying to get ready for something. And and I used to sometimes warn, I'm probably a little more relaxed now in the studio, but I would warn people, hey, by the way, if you see in a weird looking expression on my face, like there's something wrong or I even say something, it's not because there's something wrong. It's just because I'm like sorting out this one detail right here. So just uh, don't take it personally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I like to try to keep the whole tech side of it as invisible to them as I can so that they're not, I mean, you know, just as much as possible to not have to have them wait forever for me to do something or whatever. So I guess being being really prepared is also, uh, which another quote I always liked, flying by the seat of your pants proceeds crashing by the seat of your pants. Nice. <laughs> that is, you know who that one is? No, who's that? That is Bill Walsh. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the pro football, the, the San Francisco 49ers coach. Flying by the seat of your pants proceeds, proceeds crash. In other words, if you're flying by the seat of your pants, you're just about to wipe you out. You might. By the and seat sometimes of your pants, it's great right? to fly by the seat, but I, I think yeah. the more you can be prepared, then you end up making, calling audibles. You end up flying by the seat anyway, but if you're well prepared to begin with. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, I was just talking about this with Mitch Dane, um, the idea of being prepared for something. In fact, we were comparing it to being prepared for this podcast. Um, similarly to having musicians, it's like, I like when a band goes into the studio and the preparedness is the fact that these musicians are either playing a lot of music individually or playing a lot of music together and the song's ready and the chart's ready and the whatever's going to be done is has been rehearsed. So that when you're in the studio and you're in that moment, you you have that um, preparedness from which to fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah, you're not staring at the chart wondering which the next you know where it is. You're just playing. You're not thinking. Yeah, I just said from which to fly by the seat of your pants. I don't know. I, I don't know that's many good. other occasions to say that. I think that's but, legit. But like you know, it's I, because when people are in the moment making music in the studio, when when you you can just kind of go for something and have it be brand new in the first time, that's when I feel like you capture these magical performances and first takes and stuff. But if you're so not ready, you don't even get to that point. Yeah. yeah. Or, you, or you have that and it's the middle of so much crap that it's not worth anything. You know? And you can be over-rehearsed. It's possible. When I was younger, I used to think more, I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Neil Young fan, and especially that period of records, the whole Ditch trilogy where they were very sloppy, and, and I love those records. But I, I spent some time trying to make those things and replacements records every time. And it was like, yeah. okay. Replacements the band? Yeah, I love the replacements. Yeah, nice, they were too. a bad influence on me. <laughs> I love those guys. I saw them uh, play at our college in St. Louis Did you? years ago. Yeah. Oh, God. Apparently, they trashed the, the dressing room, which was kind of exciting. And uh, when Chris King was on the podcast, he shared a story about that. I think he had he either had something to do or he was 
good friends with the, uh, whoever booked them for the show. So he kind of told the backstage story. Were they, were they good or did they suck? What, how oh, of course they were great. But I was fighting with my girlfriend at that particular show. So okay. I don't remember the music. That's yeah, that's funny. I heard another guy say he saw the replacements and a similar thing happened. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. I derailed this too. You're telling us about um, sorry. <laughs> about you know kind of the looseness of music and and trying to capture that sound, yeah. which obviously the replacements are that. Yeah, and I love that. Yeah, you know, but the, taking it big too, star too far. Comes to mind too. Big star. I love big star. Yeah, all that stuff. And I love old blues. Like I, in my car, I'm listening to uh, uh, Bo Diddley. Like I've been listening to him for about a week. Nice. I'll just put that on, and it's just, is he playing the square, the rectangle guitar? You think? Uh, yeah, he's definitely playing. It's his first two albums, like on one CD. So I mean I just love that sound. There's a space there with the chest stuff. There's a there's a a room. You yeah. know, there's an air around it. And it's that's very just, exciting, man. I'm looking forward. That's actually one of my questions for you. So we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Um, I'm losing track of where exactly we were headed with Sorry. that. But but <laughs> it was um the looseness and the preparedness, right? So what does it mean to be prepared but do a loose record like that, or or what does it mean to be unprepared or overprepared? I think you said. Um. Well, I you know. I guess if you can rehearse something till you're blue in the face and you're just sick of it, you know, I mean, just sick of it. And and it gets to where, you know, sometimes in that case, it helps to get away from a project for a minute, you know, and uh, come back fresh and listen to it again. But but there is over-rehearsing in that sense. And then under-rehearsed is what, I, you know, with a lot of bands and stuff, they'll, they're young and they'll play a lot of live shows that go over really well. And they'll think we're well rehearsed because we've played a whole, and I was in bands that were definitely guilty of this. And then you get in the studio and everything's sort of under a microscope yeah. and you can hear everything and you realize how bad, not bad, but you realize how much more clumsy you sound than what you really thought. Yeah. And when you hear it back, it's like, oh, my tone could be, so, you know, it helps to kind of get together and rehearse just for the, for the record and really think about, you know, writing some solos, stuff like that. It's cool to jam some solos in the studio and just kind of come straight. Yeah, well, when live, you can do eight bars of solo instead of four bars. It's more concise usually, yeah. Um, A couple of other thoughts about that. Um, One of which is that when you're in the studio and you set it all up, I feel like you you create a new instrument. The studio sound is a different instrument than the sound of a live band coming off a stage on the one hand. And so therefore, you want to you want to respond to that, this new instrument and play it properly, which I feel like is what you're describing too, is like being prepared with the right kind of tone so that this new multi-miked thing coming out of a pair of speakers sounds great. Yeah. And then two is as engineers and as producers, we also can't lean on that as an excuse. It's like, cause there is that challenge of going like, well, why, why am I losing that that big room sound that's coming from this band off the stage. Why, why did I ditch it? Why, why, you know, how can I capture that? I've been listening to um, a bunch of jam recordings and songwriting tapes of my own recently. And each one I was like sort of placing my phone in a different spot or using a different thing. And man, it's a remarkable, it's the same drum set upstairs, same, probably, you know, same me, maybe same or one or two guitars and amps, but what a difference in sound, just depending on some of that too. So, yeah, just where you put it. Yeah, just yeah. depending on how you captured it on that particular day. Yeah. So I don't know. Those are two takeaways that come to mind from what you said. Yeah, definitely. And then I, you know, I also this makes me think about you know the better the better tones I get out of them from the source. That's the better you know like a huge percentage of that. Most of it's coming from them. So if I can help them find that first before any microphone or anything I'm going to do in the room happens, then 
the, the tones are going to come out better too, you know, like, it's, it's, and it goes back to what I was saying before is kind of try to keep the, the technology part invisible to them. You know, as long as they're comfortable and they feel good and they're playing great, then they're going to give me the tones there. It's yeah. going to, it's, it's funny how it all comes together at once when the band gets tight, gets it together and then all of a sudden the tones are there too. And you're like, what did I do? Oh, it wasn't really. Yeah. Great. I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Or you, um, yep. Yep. Yeah, so many examples of that. That's why one of the reasons why I love tracking and working with a band in the studio so much is because there's a real, it really does have an element of capturing a moment, especially with like tape and old mm -hmm. tape machines. You talked about not aligning it, but in, in my case, it's like, you know, I'd be aligning it, trying to set levels to it, all that stuff. And somehow you're just going for that one sweet spot where the band is just ready to give you their performance and you've just gotten your levels finally settled in and everything's like just there and you hit record and you hope you captured it. And then you also hope the tape machine plays it back properly afterwards. But yeah, it locks it, in like that together. Yeah, it's a cool thing. And then like, you know, the very next take, it may be gone and it may not be the same thing. There's another funny thing that would happen where like, I would screw up the levels. They do a great performance, but, but the levels were too hot and everything. And and then I'd go back and on the next take, I'd be like, I'd nail the engineering side. I'd be like, yes, yeah. spot on. And guess which take was the one yeah, that we the, loved or, and, or ended up using? Yeah, and keep the better one. Like yeah. that's we use that I've first. Done a lot one. of things like that where it wasn't you know, or somebody hands me something to mix that was done in some basement that just you know. But hell, if it's a brilliant performance. Uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna want to keep that over something that I think I nailed. And nobody wants to hear a perfectly greatly engineered, terrible performance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, with with my band in St. Louis, we used to do a lot of um, recording ourselves, uh, performing everything together with the vocals and stuff, and we mm -hmm. just record that way. And it was like we're just keeping everything. We're not replacing a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And inevitably, we would we would do that. We'd go like one too far. And then we'd have to back up and we'd use that one that had the mistake, but just had the energy. Yeah. That was always the better choice, you know? Yeah, always. Yeah, it's all about that. Um, do you have any stories you'd like to share about an important failure in the studio, maybe with regards to that kind of stuff, something that was maybe a, a nightmare for you, but turned out to be a great learning experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had uh, this whole uh, thing for me is a series of epic failures and, and trial and error and learning, you know? So... Uh, yeah, as far as setbacks, failures, um, just I guess one of the biggest things at some point a few years ago was kind of putting too many eggs in one basket with certain clients or certain artists. And because yeah. you kind of have to keep moving and you kind of have to uh, uh, plan on things to fall through. So I had a couple things at once, kind of, I had a whole bunch of stuff at once, kind of just, you know, one whole fall, everything just sort of canceled. And, uh, you know, it was like nothing I could really do. And it was like, oh, okay. So this is like something where, I, you know, I, I should do a better job of like always looking for gigs, not settling back on the, uh, you know, not, not feeling too comfortable with, okay, this is all going to happen. If it's not in stone or if it's not really booked, you know, you might as well plan on it not happening and hope that it does. Uh, so now it's like, I'll try to keep two or three, two or three things going all the time at once. And maybe one of them happens. And if all three of them happen then it's going to be, holy shit, how am I going to do all this work? But that's a good place right. to be. That's a good, that's a good yeah. problem I mean, to have. That's, that's a really good thing to have. <laughs> well, they say, you know, when it rains, it pours, you know, or what do they say in um, snack or famine? 
in, Snacker in famine, that's it. And it's funny how you'll talk to buddies that do this and everybody will be like, oh man, it's been so slow. I mean, we're going to have to do, this isn't, this industry's gone. And then, then you won't see them for three or four months and everybody's just slamming busy. It always happens during the same times. Yeah. Everybody, and lately it's just been super slamming for me and a bunch of people I know, so. Well, I had a buddy um, or have a buddy who, when we talked about that too, we seemed to always joke that like, if he was slamming, it meant I didn't have anything going on. If I okay. was slamming, it meant like it was just like this opposite, really? opposite. balancing. No, no particular reason. We weren't working with the same people. Um, all right, cool. So let's uh, jump into some some specific questions here. Um, one of my questions was, "What are your thoughts about recording a band as a live performance?" Which we we've already been talking about, and you know, I, the title of this episode is going to be capturing the soul of a band in a studio, but let me ask it to you again. Like t- talk to us some more about why it's important to do a live performance with a band. Like why not, you know, record the drums in line them perfectly up to the grid overdub each instrument one at a time, build it like that. You know, what does a live performance do? Well, you can do that one thing at a time and line it all up, and people do and have good results with it. I just don't tend to gravitate towards that side of you know music. Like my partner Leland does hip hop all the time, and they do one thing at a time, and they make some really cool sounds. But for me, the rush, first of all, from my end of it, and this is just purely selfish, but the rush I get out of tracking an eight-piece band or whatever is like just it's animating and it keeps me going. And at the end of the day, there's a uh, there's this sense of accomplishment. It already kind of sounds like a record. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a nervousness. I don't sleep very well still before tracking this. <laughs> and it's funny because I've talked to my dad about this and he still doesn't either. So I'm like, all right, that'll never go away. But, um, and just the way, you know, the drummer, if you put the, well, if you're going to stack things, I think you should put the drums first. You know, I've done right. it the other way and yeah. I, I don't like it. But, um, you know, now he's played his drum part and... He's set in stone, and you've and now the bass player or whoever comes and you stack them all next. But the drummer from the beginning, he's painted into a corner. He doesn't get to react to the bass player. The bass player and the drummer are now in a corner. They don't get the guitar player can react to them, but they can't react to him. And you just lose this whole uh, synergy, I guess. I don't even know if I'm using that word right, but no, I agree with you. I mean, I, I was talking about this recently. It's that difference between. Um, uh, person to person communication going on in music versus, you know, I call it man versus computer. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like whenever I do an overdub, it's just me versus the computer. Yeah. Feels that way mixing sometimes too, I guess. Oh yeah. Mixing can be a tedious long thing. I I think that part is really fun. But to me, if there was a part that gets the most tedious during a record, it's the, uh, the overdub process can be, and, and I love every part of this, but, but the overdub part, can drag out a little for me. And I'm like, Oh, when are we going to get to mix this man? When am I going to get to, you know, do that? I totally agree. And maybe if we didn't care so much, maybe we just do overdubs in one pass. And it's like, sounds great. Move to the next thing. But I care too much and I get Mm -hmm. caught up and I'm like, yeah, it just doesn't feel right. We got to keep going for it till we get it. And yeah, you know, and I'll overdo it too. It sometimes, or, or just like keep pushing it. I'll come back later and I'll have been hearing tuning issues and then come back later and listen. I'm like, what was I listening to? I don't even, this all sounds the same to me right here. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. I know that when I'm playing myself and it's literally me versus the computer, it's usually easier for me to just keep rolling takes. Yeah. Like I can't switch from musician mode to engineer mode and then back to musician mode. I can listen to something 
and understand musically maybe what's supposed to happen somewhere. But that's about it. And then it's just like, I like to get lost in it. I find I do, and maybe I imagine that the computer's responding to what I'm doing if I just get sort of wipe my brain out, you know. To, yeah, you know, stop overdone. thinking. Of, it really does split your brain in half. I get, it's hard to have any perspective uh, doing both. So you do the loop record thing maybe or something where it's just going to roll. Actually, I never roll. do loop record. I've done that sometimes before. It makes a new playlist every time. Yeah. So you can just keep on jamming a solo and then, you know, yeah. comp it or something. But, I, you know, I haven't been playing as much. If I do, it's little parts uh, lately. Yeah, the better players I'm working with, the less they're going to need me playing guitar. It's like, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, so I was going to add a comment. You talked about making sure you had the drums down right first. And I was going to say that that also applies to Beat Detective. If you're straightening out drums, if that's your thing and that's part of your sound, um, I always find it's you have to do that before you mm-hmm. add more instruments. I've had producers sometimes ask for it as if, I could straighten the drums out against a live performance that had just happened. I'm like, that doesn't work. Nobody's playing to those drums. They played to the messed up drums. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that happen before where uh, an artist, you know, these guys went to school and record and know some, know this stuff. And the art, we we did the drums after we'd done guitars and vocals to a, I guess, to a click. And so he, okay, he's going to take the drums home and grit them out and line them up. And they, and I still hear that thing to this day. And I kind of think, Oh, the drums are sort of on this train track. And I've heard a couple other things where that happened. The drums are on like a train track straight ahead, and then all the guitars are played to a loosey-goosey drum part, and it's kind of, there's this discombobulated, the groove just kind of gets killed. Yeah, right. Which is also different from what Matt Gaiden was talking about in here when he was talking about working with J.J. Kale, who had brought in a drum machine. Drum machine, yeah. And then I was like, that's that's a little different when you – and it's – well, it's the same idea. When you have the drum machine and it goes down first, and then you can have loose acoustics and, and electrics play to all it. kind of winding around. You're but playing, playing to, the to it, track. Yeah. it can make sense. I've always wanted to make a re- – not always, but recently in the last few years, I had this – as strange as it is, because getting like natural drum sounds is the whole reason I got into this, like the Glenn Johns thing. And that's like why I even wanted to really get into engineering. But all of a sudden, I kind of want to make a record with a Lindrum. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man. I, I, I need a Lindrum machine in here. Well, you know, Billy Livesey, he's got one and he and it, it lives over at 79. And I borrowed it once and it was just cool. And we made some, it was a lot of fun, but I still haven't convinced anybody to actually make a oh, and official, like actually program out the whole an drum official record. Like, let's make the drum part, and then that's our drums, and then we just make it to that, like a Prince or somebody, you know? Like, yeah, I thought when Prince died, maybe somebody'd want to do it. Uh, You'll it have to happen. get a hold of the drum machine. Yeah, write out or or um, uh, what, arrange one song worth of drums on it so that you can press play, and it'll play the whole song. Down. Yeah. And then play some guitar to that and just show somebody. Just show and somebody. Be like, That's cool as shit. Well, I, 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 yeah. I, I, there was one that almost happened, but the drummer showed up and he didn't really like that I had this going on. Like, he, he, I kind of got the <laughs> Maybe the wrong guy, guy was, to, to try and, you Yeah, know, I didn't, you know, so it was uh, like, Bring okay. on your team. And he's a great so. drummer, so it worked out good, but. That's funny. <laughs> All right, so speaking of drums, your drums sound great, man. Oh, thanks. Um, Rockstar, as a reminder, I've put together links to Nick's music um, in a YouTube playlist, which is in the show notes. So you can click through and and go uh, listen to these records and songs. But your drums are simple. They're not over the top, but they're totally complete sounding. Can you talk about creating the small room space around the drums on records like SEMO, uh, if I'm pronouncing it right, yeah, and, and Willie and the Giant? Um, yeah, well, the... 
the Simo thing was uh, that track I gave you, uh, Two Time and Woman, was done. We went down to the in Macon, Georgia, to the big house where the Almond Brothers lived and jammed and played. Um, it's kind of a long story there, but but JD, the main guy, had befriended. Did the Almond Brothers kick your ass when you got down there? No, they weren't there. They weren't there. They weren't there. None of them are hardly even here anymore. There's only like one guy, well, a couple guys. But that was so. It was this big space in the front of the building with a, like a spiral staircase going up. And no, I didn't do the Zeppelin thing with the, I just thought, nah. What is the day. Zeppelin thing? Let's tell the rock stars. Oh, because so he put mics up on the, they had a spiral stairwell, right? And But it wasn't recorded, was Zeppelin recorded there at that place? Oh, no, no, no. I'm okay, talking but about just the, the idea, the, right? You know, it was set up so that you might want to do the uh, levy thing. Yeah, which is the we drum kit in the big stairwell. And then you just, I believe it was a pair of buyer. M160s. 160s That's or what something. I read, yeah. yeah. And they're just hanging down above the kit, pointed down. Yeah. And maybe there was a kick mic out front or something. And I think you put a delay with an echo rack or something on it. Or, you know, I've read several different versions. But but it was a big open sounding foyer in the front. So I put some baffles on either side and had guitar amps on the other sides, like Marshalls. It was a lot of bleed. And uh, that band was all about bleed at the time. And it was fun. Um, and that was Simo? That was Simo, yeah. Very, just pretty much straight up. Had one mic out in front getting smashed. And then uh, did some parallel compression to it later. But uh, we set up a tiny studio in like two hours. We t- I loaded the trailer. We loaded the band's trailer, rented some stuff from Blackbird, fit as many baffles as I could, went down there. We had about two hours to set up a whole studio, which was a rack of pre's and my Apollo at the time and, and some mics, you know. And that was pretty much, we just banged it out. We banged out a whole bunch of songs and like, two afternoons. It's so much fun, man. It's been a w- long time, other than Bonnaroo, going down and setting up a studio at Bonnaroo every summer. Cool. Um, it's been a while since I did the, you know, guerrilla style recording, which is sort of how I always saw it when you set up a studio in a house. And it's super fun to do, especially, yeah. you know, like, yeah, it's just fun to do, you know? It's a lot of fun in a house. Like this, like what you have here now, and, and my new place in Berry Hill is a, it's an old house, you know? it's I love making records in houses. Uh, there's some kind of a feel to, to a building that wasn't built for specifically uh, perfect studio sound. Yeah, and there's and sometimes when you take a portable thing into a house and set up mics and position people and do things, there's a little bit of a benefit to the fact that you don't exactly know what it sounds like. Yeah, it like it kind of throws you off balance just just enough to make it really interesting you have to improvise yeah you have to improvise you probably i mean i've done things before where we had headphones but then you know one of the when when chris was on the show who i mentioned before one of our very first recording sessions is we went up to roxbury uh, massachusetts um outside of boston and it was uh we were in an old church and we were working with an african um storyteller dancer drummer who was playing a djembe and just like telling these stories mm. on the mic. And so it was like his djembe was booming in the in the room and we set up room mics and I did all this stuff, simple stuff. But it was like, you know, I didn't really know what it sounded like. We just went straight to dat and then we'd bounce it down to a cassette and take it to the car and go jam it. Yeah. And it sounded, and that's how you knew, you know, it was like after the fact, then you go back and make an adjustment. And it's that's kind of fun, fun to work that way, you know. Let's see, and that is flying by the seat of your pants, and that is fun because but, because but of we the, were prepared, you're you know, as I prepared shut up as you stuff. can be. It helps to be as prepared as you can be always. But that, and then what did you ask about the Willie, the Willie and the Giant? Yeah. So, um, well, wait, hold on. On the Simo record, uh, uh-huh. remind us again what you were doing for miking the drums. As far as I remember. had a pair of M one forty nines, which are those newer Neumann ones, and uh, 
I brought those from Blackbird because uh, I thought they'd be more reliable. If I'm driving a few hundred miles away and something doesn't work, it's going to be hard. Uh, those were set up in like a Glenn John's setup, which is my favorite thing to do. Yeah, there's a couple other things I'll do, but you know what? We'll put you on the spot, man. Yeah, tell us the Glenn John setup again. Okay, um, basically, you put one mic right up above the snare drum, three or four feet up, facing down, and then another mic over, kind of above the floor tom, also facing the snare. And some people measure it. I've seen a video where Glenn Johns himself is like, "Nah, you don't fucking measure it." But but I take a piece of uh, cable, right, and just make sure they're equidistant from where he hits the snare, so that the phase on that lines up. And then it's it's just this, and then maybe a kick drum mic, and that's what I think he did. Now I'll still mic the snare top and bottom, and I'll still close mic the stuff and put rooms. But that's my you know eighty percent of the drum sound comes from that airy. That yeah, because when picture. you get back to Nashville and somebody's like, "Hey, can you turn the snare up?" You want to be able to go. Yeah, they yeah. Want, they're used to being <laughs> able to do that, and so yeah. you kind of you know. And if I want a closer, tighter thing, it's it's nice to have that. But that's what got me into this whole thing. What do you do with those two mics that are above and? Over the floor time, do you pan them? Yeah, about uh, about one o'clock and what is it, ten and two maybe on the on so about about equal panned left and right. Yeah, but I don't go all the way out with them. Right, I just go about halfway, and then usually there's kind of a sweet spot. I'll just kind of mess with them, but yeah, you know, it's not not all the way to the sides. Yeah, usually I put like guitars out there or something. You know, yeah, dig it. Um, all right, cool. You know, there was something I think maybe it was Matt Rossbang was talking about um, discovering that. I think it was him discovering that you could do the Glenn Johns miking kind of thing on the drum kit. And then if you put the, the guitar amp and the bass amp on either side of the drums, uh, parallel to the face of the kick, mm -hmm. like you can get this really sweet togetherness of the whole sound. I heard him say that at, at a thing at 79, like a summit. And I wish that I had known that for a couple of things before I didn't think of it. Uh, but I don't know that I've been in a situation where there was a wide enough space to put them. Right, there. a big enough room to have yeah. all that that much sound. But that in sounds there. interesting, and I'd love to do that. You know that, and I've heard Vance talk about it too. I think. And, oh, there was another detail too that was shared about the um, part of that sound with those mics is is going with the mic pre, so just to the point of distortion, and then back off one from there. So so a hot mic pre is kind of part of that sound. Is yeah, I'll kind of drive the pre. I'll kind of pull the faders down a little bit and start with the faders down a bit. And then so the pre is getting a little more juice. Yeah. Um, I've been digging doing that with these Cappy preamps I've got. Those, oh, yeah, that's right. I got to uh, I got to meet Cappy. Man, this stuff's great. And I've, I've got, I've been doing, turn that fader way down on there. and Tell us about the Cappy stuff. I really like it, man. It's just like API, vintage API sounds. And I've got about, well, I got six channels of that. I mean, tell us who he is. What, what oh, is this? Jeff here in Nashville, right? Yeah, yeah, he builds these um, vintage API preamps. And you can get them with different op amps that all have a different sound. I like the Scott Lieber's Red Dots. That's what I have in all my stuff. And uh, man, it's just great sounding stuff. I'm really a believer. Uh, it's it's sort of uh, I usually my drums are going through going through that. You know, That's I've been cool. always been an API fan for the yeah. for the drums and for everything. I've loved a lot of the API stuff I've used. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So then uh, Willie and the Giant. Maybe okay, a that slightly one. different sound. I think of the Simo one the way you described it as kind of a big kind of a levy when the levy breaks. Yeah, Marshall stack rock. That was like a '60s, you know, cream kind of deal, and then Willie, like he was doing, uh, that band was doing. I mean, it's sort of like Paul Simon-ish. Sometimes it's a little more hushed in places, and it's a little more soul-oriented, and and 
that one we did it said welcome to 1979 um we had done an ep or we had done a single and a flip side like a 45 there before and that was the first time i'd ever worked on tape and that one honestly didn't sound as good as the full length we did but it still sounded good um it sounded very vintagey and this one we as a band they were tighter i was better at that you know we'd figured out some things there and figured out some things together and uh so we just went over to, to there and uh just you know did it in the room live together um you know the amps were separated uh we did the vocals i think yeah, we did the vocals there on tape after we did the tracks so that we didn't do much comping at all uh, and it was all, I think every instrument on that one was to tape except for maybe a tambourine or two after, you know, I don't think we did hardly any overdubs at my place afterwards. It was all pretty much live. They were tight. They were a tight band. Vocals were, were afterwards though? Yeah. The were... vocals were like directly afterwards, like yeah. not long afterwards, but yeah, he went up in a booth and did Cause he was out in the room with the band with like a scratch 58 just to, he wanted the eye contact in the room thing. Right, and, but playing electric through an amp behind him somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, something about those records is uh, the, you know, I described the drums as sounding simple and not over the top, but totally complete and awesome. And um, I feel like that maybe comes together when you do a live thing like that and you don't try to do a bunch of tricky things to the drums later, you know? yeah. It's it's like when you don't try and parallel compress a whole bunch of things and and get crazy with it, then you end up with this natural tone that can sound really good. If if especially if the band's playing together, and I imagine that the bleed of the guitars into those drum mics may have been an important thing to have a little bit of that. If no, no, that some. one they were sep they were in a booth. The amps. So there was no bleed. There was no bleed. Going, no cross was, but there was bass. The bass amp was in a little closet right behind the drums. So there was some bass bleed happening. Out okay, of cool. But the, the, the drums were Matt Kramer, his, his drum tones, and that's where it really comes from. And I had like an R88, you know, the stereo AEA ribbon? Yeah. Over his kit. That's the okay. other thing. Usually it's either Glenn Johns or that. Okay. Those are my two favorites. He has kind of a big spread out kit. He's tall. The Glenn thing was, I, I thought this would work better because he's yeah, everything's cause further catch, apart. a little of everything, yeah. Yeah, and... um but the drums, yeah. I mean, back then, I guess I was doing things a good bit simpler than I do now also. So that's part of it is there's like a an innocence to I listen to stuff. This was a few years ago. And uh, I really like it still to listen to it. But there, yeah, we didn't screw with it too much. And, and we wanted it to have a vintage -y sound without just completely trying to dress up and do a Civil War reenactment. You know? <laughs> like, we don't have to sound like 19, you know, 1842. That. I'm going to remember that for, yeah, we're not, from here on Anytime we're ever like trying too hard, it's like we're dressing up and trying to do a Civil War reenactment. Yeah, we're using two tin cans and a string. That's the only <laughs> way to do it. It's the old school. Ooh, man, has anybody done that yet? I'm sure somebody. God, I want to record an album with tin cans If you and don't a use two tin cans and a string, you're a, you're a wiener. You're a faker. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, but the dose, or no, excuse me. Oh yeah, that one. That's so funny. The dose is the band's name, but I capitalized the B and but in the beginning of my sentence, so I yeah. read it as if that was the full name. The dose, uh, it's more produced sounding as drums. Um, what'd you do there? That was a uh, that song I sent you was we ripped up some T-shirts and uh, stuck them on the over the drums, you know, for that kind of Ringo-y deadened thing, you know. And the drummer was great. Um, and that band was, uh, that one, 79 kicked me that gig that just came through Chris. He was nice enough for a good period to like start just sending me stuff. And it, it, it was, uh, 
great learning experience over there. And that band was actually Robert Downey Jr.'s son is the main guy in that band. The wow. Guy. Yeah. And that one came in and it was, we didn't know anything about what it was going to, it was just like, yeah, this band coming, they're called the Dose. And the drummer played the bass with his feet on some kind of a, a Moog bass pedal deal. So it was an interesting, uh, interesting project. So and, he was playing drums and bass? Yeah. Yeah. At the same time in live, he cool. plays them like that and he's got this weird Moog uh, deal and uh so it's a duo and uh a lot of big muffs and a lot of uh that's crunch. pretty it, man. I, I think there's something that happens when you start combining instruments um playing drums and singing you know that's obviously been really important uh for the band you know um mm -hmm. if you've ever tried it yourself if you're playing drums it can almost be easier to play drums if you're singing at the same time because you don't do stupid shit on the drums you know yeah it keeps you simple um i remember that there was a moment that where things would click for me because I played banjo and would also sing. And once I learned how to play the banjo and sing the background part that I had written or whatever, and they went together, that could have like a clicking moment and make, make them go together. Are there other instrument combos that you've seen people doing or, or on making records where you you felt like it's, you really appreciated that? Playing and singing at the same time, guitar wise, a lot of that. And that's always fun and it does seem to uh like back to some stuff with simo would be like he'd be in the room with a mic right in front of the kit for some of these things so there's bleed there's a marshall stack 10 feet behind him there's a kit 10 feet in front of him and it's just when he's not singing there's just right. everywhere and but the take so the keeper take would be the one where his vocals were good like the best the band was so tight oh, so that you would keep good. a live vocal on that or, yeah, or totally. that was just the you take you could with... not keep a live vocal on yeah, some of those some of that stuff was from like their basement when there was just rehearsal tapes we mixed into something but but that's always fun because when somebody is playing and singing at the same time they can lock in in a way where they don't overplay they don't ever sing and they don't worry about step one stepping on the other like you're saying yeah um Here's another question about drums. Why do we give a shit? How can we talk about drums so much? We're sick, sick individuals. What is it? Is it? Is, I was. I've been trying to think about this myself. I mean, is it the fact that drums are one of the more complex instruments we get to record? So I therefore, think so. we're proud of ourselves if we get it right. I think it's a wank in that fashion. Sure. Yeah. It's I mean, it's the hardest fashion, thing to do. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of mics. You know, sometimes are, are very few, and you got to really. And it's an acoustic instrument. Also, like acoustic guitars have become one of my favorite challenges to record and uh i don't know the drum sound for me like sets a tone on a rock and roll record or any record where you know i like you know getting a great drummer in there is the I've, that's the if you don't have that then it's not going to be great but you might want to do a record with no drums on it yeah maybe yeah if it's really bad but but also i think that you like as an engineer have maybe a little more effect on the final product of that versus a lot of other instruments uh, in a lot of ways because of the because you're using space. You're using a room and you're using uh, presence and space and moving these mics around to capture. That's the mo And it's cool to do that with guitar amps, put mics far away and get room. And that's what I love is hearing space on a record, hearing yeah. room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of putting room mics on guitars. It's, it's tricky. I don't know if I haven't found my favorite spots in my room here yet. Uh, or not, but sometimes I just feel like I'm putting a room mic on the guitar just to put a room mic. Yeah, on it the doesn't guitar. always and then later work. Later, I'm like, get rid of that lid. You don't. Oh, need yeah, that I get rid of it all the time, and then I just, well, let's just put that up here with the other one, and then we'll just do it. I mean, that's it's like it has to be the right tempo. Sometimes slower tempos with like yeah. a slide guitar, it's a really cool thing. But like, yeah, 
the guitar or electric guitar doesn't always doesn't always pan out. With you don't the automatically need a room mic. Um, or sometimes, really, the better effect is for me to take the close mic and run it through some sort of a delay and bring sound. that as a short thing over on the other side, so it just makes it you know less mono. Love a good water. short delay. Yeah. Love a good short delay. A good short delay on some electric guitars is cool. Um, all right, so you mentioned acoustic guitars. Let's talk yeah. about acoustic guitars. What, what sort of things are you enjoying doing right now to record acoustic guitars? Uh, I've been doing a bunch of country stuff with my dad lately, which is cool because these musicians are just silly great. And uh, like acoustic guitar, it's a lot of Biff Watson, who is a great acoustic guitar player. He's actually my uncle. He's married to my aunt. He's my uncle. He's been there. Around, I've known him my whole life. And he's a great player. So again, great player, great instrument. Somebody knows what they're doing. There's your tone, really. But for a good while, um, I did some stuff at 79 where I was putting, I think we had five acoustic, we had four acoustic instruments going at once and an electric. So we were like five guitars deep. One guy would be on a mandolin sometimes and they'd switch. But I was putting one large diaphragm tube mic on each because it was tape and we had a limited amount of tracks. It was like, you know, they'll get one mic and they'll like it. And I really love a U40. I've grown to love a U47 on acoustic guitar. I mean, that's pretty mic. cool. And I, also, I think Five Guitars Deep is a great album title for that. It was fun, man. It was just a big wire choir with a lot of acoustics left and right doing the kind of the windshield wiper thing. Right. Yeah. Strum. And then I always compress those, you know, to tape or to Pro Tools. Like for some reason, acoustic guitars, I always have to hit with a little compression going in. I just windshield like wiper thing. I think of like Traveling Wilburys. Exactly. Yeah. Traveling Wilburys. Yeah. I love that. Um, U47. So um, I, the, a sponsor on the podcast is Roswell Pro Audio, and they make cool. a wonderful mic called the Mini K47, which is a really small um, solid state, but it has a 47 capsule in it. Nice. And it sounds it sounds great. It sounds I love really 47 good. capsules. That's like my yeah. favorite thing. Have you found some um, interesting 47 mics to try out if you don't have an actual Neumann U47? Are there some different ones that you've used that seem similar? Yeah, there's a guy named Bill Bradley who uh, makes uh, a 47 mic, and it's uh, my dad has a pair of those. That's Bill, the mic shop out in Franklin? Yeah. yeah I actually went out there on Friday to drop off a mic that needed some of the old Telefunken tube. Uh, went and, then out. You, and after you guys chatted, you came back on Saturday? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. No, I actually had to come back, but I wished I'd hung around longer, and I can't wait to go pick the mic up to ask him more about Chess Records. I guess he worked there, and oh, really cool dude that. living out yeah, in the woods there. I, I'm glad you reminded me. So I talked to Bill about having him come on the podcast. Too, oh, cool. So I'll, I'll have to pursue that now. Oh, Bill, we're coming for you, man. I'll tell him you said hey. But yeah, those are really great. Um, and then at Blackbird, you know, we had our hands on... I mean, it was just ridiculous how much you uh the access to mcbride's collection of gear was just uh ridiculous so you know a lot of the neumanns uh, they are amazing they all sound a little different so you can pick you know you can get a good one just try the one until you find the right one yeah pretty much did you ever mic up a drum kit with all uh, Elam 251s like John no. said he it was his goal? Who did that? I thought John said like that was part of the, the oh, thing he's with Blackbird. Done is that, like, I think they've done that. Let's they, have enough Elam 251s to be able to mic a whole drum kit with I think he one. could mic two or three of them now with that. Like I think he's got <laughs> – I don't know how many he's got, but it's over uh, – well over 20. Yeah. You know, maybe double that. What a trip, man. Yeah. Um, all right. So – uh, speaking of short delays and cool sounding stuff, the vocal effect on the dose sounds trippy. That was my not so clever adjective I threw in there. But what process did you go? Do you go through to find a cool effect on music? Um, 
And how do you skip over all the other ones that you're not going to use? Well, I didn't mix that one. So okay. uh, anything that went on in the mix, I didn't do. But I do recall we doubled the vocals. And I think that is what you're hearing there. Um, so that was just like doubling. And it kind of gets a weird Ozzy thing going. Because yeah, the right. pitch on one will be a little this way and the other one that way. And they weave in and out of each other. And uh, so it kind of, he, he ended up with kind of a grungy, it just reminded me of Ozzy a little bit. Yeah. It reminded me of, you know. Well, and you know, that's another thing that happens really, that's really a cool effect about um, doing live tracking with the band, especially if you have live vocals bleeding in a room. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there were times where I was like, oh man, we can't have the scratch vocal in there. What if we hear it in the middle of the the song? Well, if it's the wrong kind of music, then yeah, maybe you don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing something, if you're doing something cool, yeah. then um, there's a good chance that when you go overdub your vocals, as long as the lyric, the vocalist isn't going to change all the lyrics and phrasing too much. They'll sing over that. They sing over that, and you get a natural doubling stereo effect on yeah. the vocal that you couldn't get any other way, and it's great, you know? So that original um, scratch vocal will be bleeding through the drum mics and and room mics that are out there because they're singing while the, the take's going down. Yeah. And I've done it where recording them in the room, but then if you still have to fix something, you can get away with it. It, it might get a little bit. If you know what to listen for, you might hear, you might hear it change. But if you kind of punch it in in the right spot and out, then you you can get away with fixing something that was bled on a right, little bit. Right. It's not the end of you can fix almost anything if you really get in a bind, you know. Yeah, if you if you try hard. Sometimes enough. it's like a Harry Houdini thing. You you got to figure out a way out of this. And it's kind of fun to just commit to things and and then you sort of end up having to be creative to, to make it work. That's cool, man. Um, I was remembering that, uh, I don't remember what song it is, but, uh, the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, there's definitely yeah. a track or two in there where you hear bleeding yeah. scratch vocals happening, coming through the mic. And, um, Al Perkins, the pedal steel player here in Nashville, he played on that record and he told some funny stories when I was working with him about how Mick would, have a scratch vocal mic and he'd dance around the control room and sing another scratch vocal during every single take, which in this case, I, I think he meant like every take he was doing on the pedal steel, like He's Mick just doing vocals, bust out a vocal and sing over the top of it wow. just to like inspire, you know? Cool. Which is a pretty cool thing. And I mean, it, um, the idea of getting a great performance out of the band um, and always delivering your, your very best with each take, I think, is so important when you're recording. That'd be a lot of fun to play to a brand new Mick Jagger vocal that hasn't already been committed or happened before. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, let me see what questions I want to ask and then we'll take a a short break for the jam session. Okay. Um, tell us about weatherman sound. How did you plan out your studio space? How did you arrive at this new studio that you've got going on? Uh, Well, my partner Leland was working there with an artist and, uh, who, who had taken over the space and was leasing it. Um, for about a year, year and a half. And he had previously, we'd gone in together on my little home studio for a while, like a year and a half. He'd kind of pay me some rent and then would use it a lot. So we'd work together that way. And um, the opportunity came along where they kind of needed a new tenant for the place um, or the old tenant was going to move out. So I said, sure, you know, I'd kind of gotten my place pretty well and together. And I called him over to, to, uh, hang out one day and we were, and he's like, what if you came in with me on this thing? And I think together we could hack it, man. We could make the rent every month. And if we combine our gear and stuff, I said, sure. You know, 
And uh, and this is uh, describe the location of town, and and you guys are in a pretty unique collection of buildings there. Yeah, we're over there in the House of Blues area, so we lease one of those buildings. So they're our landlords, Gary Bell's. Well, what is House of Blues for those oh, rock stars studio. who don't know anything about it? Well, it's a big big recording studio complex um, right there in Berry Hill. He's got let's see seven or eight rooms, really cool big rooms, and uh, it's just a really good hang. I like being there a lot. Blues is one of my favorite kinds of music too. So it yeah. doesn't hurt. What are some things that you see if you're just driving through the street there? Big pictures of blues artists and country artists and murals on fences and walls and young millennial girls taking selfies in front of them. That's the big <laughs> that's the big new thing is they must it must be on a website or a tour map because every especially weekends or any beautiful day, I'll be like washing my hands and I'll hear a bunch of laughter outside and I'll Look, and there'll be a bunch of people taking pictures in front of all the, uh, you know, all the paintings. It's a beautiful place. It's really neat. And Gary's been a great landlord. We've we've been really happy. Yeah, you guys yeah. even have your own water tower. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty funny. Is there anything in it? No, there's not like a hot. There's tub whiskey in it. It pours whiskey. down and it supplies. Yeah. We have a tap in every room on the whole place. And there you go. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so, what have you learned about running a commercial studio? Um, well, you know, it's kind of mostly just me and Leland working all the gigs. So we haven't done, it's sort of private slash commercial, you know, we keep it busy and we pretty much need to work most of the stuff coming through to, to be able to pay and be able to cover our overhead and make a living. But we are open to uh, other folks coming in and we've done that. But uh, having the overhead is the biggest difference compared to working at my home place. Um, that's a new and, uh, exciting risk, you know, and, uh, well, we've made it past a year and we're, we're still plugging along and, uh, you just have to be a little more, uh, you know, careful, you, yeah. you know, it's just more overhead. So does it make it easier sometimes to, um, say no when you need to say no, or just say, um, you know, this is, I'm sorry, this is what our, this is the budget we need to be able to do this. Yeah. Thing. It makes it a little easier because I'm offering more, you know, it's, that's the thing I got to realize at first it was like, wow, I'm able to charge, I'm going to be making great money now. And then it's like, oh, actually this is a lot of overhead I really have to cover and I should be charging enough to do that without, uh, you know, so you get a paycheck or two and then, you know, you get used to the idea that a bunch of it gets sucked out every month for, for rent and for maintenance and, uh, you know, just all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a, an expense compared to my little one car garage that, you know, was tiny. Yeah. All right. So if you talk about the process and thank you for answering all this, because I think, you know, uh, many uh, of the rock stars listening, you know, there's anybody who's thinking about um, embarking upon a journey of doing records for more than just a hobby is going to have a certain like, you know, fear around questions of like, Oh, how am I going to do it? But what if I, you know, what if it doesn't work or what if this, what if that, um, you, you talk about, um, saying yes to a lot of projects that come in. So you you keep things booked and keep things working. Mm -hmm. How do you find a good model for balancing what works against you personally in your own time versus like, this is the threshold. I can't go beyond that. But like, and sustain, uh, like, like budget wise, like, no, no, no. You just like your own work, your own, um, work life balance. Oh, how do you make sure that you're within the threshold of I can sustain this and be doing this three weeks from now and four weeks from now and 16 weeks from now and not be burnt out? Um, it's generally if it's if it comes and it's good work, I'm going to do it and I'm going to keep on it until it dries up and then I'll find it, you know, go for a new thing. But lately, you know, um, having an assistant drive the Pro Tools rig for a while, you know, having somebody else, you know, help out a little bit has been a, a, a relatively new 
uh, thing to get used to for me. And it, man, it can be a lifesaver when I've got to go in in the morning and move a big rack of gear from our B room to our A room and set up all this different stuff for a session, like some of this stuff or any you know, eight person tracking date. I need some help with that. I'm not, you know, that's like a lot to do. Yeah. Um, so getting some help, we've had some, uh, you know, some good guys around and, um, but also I pretty much still do whatever, you know, if it's, if it's busy, I'm just going to rock until it's slower because I need to. What about like daily schedule work hours? What are, what are some things that are important to you? I try to keep it. Uh, I try to keep it from about 10 to about six, seven or eight. Like I try to keep day hours. I, I just have gotten to like, uh, going home at night, getting to sleep. And another thing I'll add to that is getting out of the house to work is cool. I'm digging that because I, when I go home at night, I leave the situation. Like you've, yeah. you're far enough out here from in your house there to, you leave the venue. Right. You know, my little place at home was like, I was still in the project, you know. Especially when it's raining like it has been the past couple of days. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to get out of this. But I mean, you got a bathroom and you got a kitchen. I didn't have those in my little studio. So everybody was in my house using my bathroom, my yeah. kitchen, which is neat and all are you, that. Are you married too? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. But it, you know, gets you didn't old. have to make any excuses to anybody else. No, but it's still kind of, you know, my girlfriend would want to come over and hang out and it'd be like, yeah, well, Leland's got some clients back there and, you know, they, they need to come in and out and use the bathroom while we're watching a movie. It was fine. But now it's like I'm working all day. Then I leave and go home and I've left the venue. I've left the project for yeah. a certain amount of time. And then tomorrow I'll go back in fresh. You know, I feel like every way that that applies to work, both, you know, literally and figuratively is important. It, it the mentally saying like, I'm going to work now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working. I'm done. Helps me accomplish more in that period of time. Um, I could take, uh, what is it? Um, it's not Pareto's principle. It's, uh, it's, um, oh, it'll come to me in a minute, but it's the, uh, the idea that, that, um, it can say like any task will expand to fit the time allotted for it. Yeah. So if you give yourself all day to do something or 24 hours, you'll just take up 24 hours to do it. That's like, Whereas a, yeah. If you give principle. yourself an hour or two, it'll get done in that amount of time, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And of course, you know, you, the only way to find out whether or not you appreciate one of the results over the other is to try both and then, you know, get away from it enough to look back on it and, and see what you think. And sometimes you have to let yourself do a lot of a particular thing over and over again before you can step back from it and just go like, all right, I like this way. I don't like that way. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, this podcast is a good example for me because I think for your episode, we're at about 140, 41, we're in the forties. And, um, that's a lot of the same thing over and over again to get to a point where I can say, okay, these things work well. If I do them this way, these things are a big fat waste of time. Yeah. And I don't have to do them that way, you know? Yeah. I've done it this way before and it was a disaster. I've done it this way before and it was great. Right. Exactly. But I had to do it a bunch of times and try them and just, you know, live with it for a sec. Yeah. Well, Groovy, well, let's take a break and then we'll come back in for the jam session. Rockstars, um, you can find links to what we're talking about here with Nick Worley in the show notes. If you're on your mobile device, just click through and you'll find a link there to the YouTube playlist. Go check out Willie and the Giant. Go check out Simo um, and The Dose. And 
Uh, if you're on your computer, just go to rsrockstars.com, use the uh, magnifying glass and search Nick and it'll take you to the blog post. And then one last reminder too, if you're interested in mixing and learning more about mixing yourself, I have a free mix training program that you can go sign up for right now at mixmasterbundle.com. That's a, there's a link for that also in there. And that'll show you some of the ways that I mix, um, live recorded music using stock plugins and Pro Tools, free stuff. So you can you can try it on any DAW you want. All right, we'll see you in a minute for the jam session. Cheers. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Supa Dupes working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299, or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, rock stars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Nick Worley. We're about to jump in. Nick, you ready to jam? Ready to jam. Awesome, dude. Um, I'm going to, as I always do, not follow my own guidelines. I'm blowing off the chart. I've torn up the music chart, and we're just right. going with more questions. Um, you've already talked about the studio and, uh, gear, but why don't we ask it in this way? Um, what are some cool pieces of gear? Cause it looks like your studio has got some great stuff in there. What's some stuff that you've been enjoying using lately for tracking and overdubs. And again, you already mentioned some of that, but maybe anything we didn't talk about. Um, one of my favorite like hardware pieces is the, uh, retro instruments power strip. It's like a the power strip. Yeah, you know the guy that makes the uh, the gates stay levels and yeah, the totally, totally. Well, he makes one, and I got turned onto it when I was working at Blackbird in the rental shop. People would send demo units on the, and I would just use all the stuff on the demo shelf a lot, and they'd love it because then I'd tell clients, you know, I'd tell customers about it, and then they'd get into it. So I got it. I fell in love with that. Several years later, bought one, um, and it's just a killer channel strip. It's like an old RCA tube pre is what the pre is, you know, doing. It's a Pultec type EQ, and then it's a uh, the compressor on it is really cool. It's like a, it's a Veramu circuit, you know, it has time constants on it like a Fairchild would. Yeah, and then you have a, a sidechain high pass filter, two fifty or ninety, and I always leave that thing on two fifty, and it just makes it such a smooth compression that's like transparent and and it's got a tone, but it's you don't hear all this pumpiness. Very cool. And it's called the power strip, or it's called the the power strip. That's what he calls strip. it, oh, which is confusing. <laughs> don't my plug best your piece stuff here. Is my Belkin power strip? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, awesome, man. Well, very cool. Uh, yeah, I haven't used a lot of the retro stuff, but I've seen it, and it looks really great. And I know they have like the stay level and and things like that, right? And the one seventy six. Yeah, one seventy six. Yeah, I have used some legit, some real one seventy sixes. At Sunset Sound. And, oh, wow. And I feel like, was there a 175 tour? It's the 176 and then the 1176. Was it, was maybe there amazing? was a 175. But anyway, they were great. Tube, 
gears. You got uh, tube compressors. You got just a knob in and a knob out, right? Tube's cool. I love yeah. tube stuff. Yeah. More tubes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk about mixing. How do you like to mix? And um, when you do mix, do you like to have any kind of templates that you start with so that your mix process is more efficient? Uh, no. I, I mean, I don't really – I try to do that, and then I end up changing it every time. And uh, But what I'll end up doing some on a project, if I've got something that works – for the first couple of songs and I'm getting into something for a record that seems like it's going to make it a cohesive project, I'll just import all the settings, uh, port, import session data into the next. So all the in-the-box stuff I'm doing is, is I can pretty much put the same plugs on stuff and start from a similar point. And it's kind of as if you still had everything patched in on your console. Right. It used you know. to be that you just, the tape kept going from one, the song on the reel of tape to the next song and the console was set up exactly the same way. Yeah. So I look at it like that, and uh, that's kind of how I. That's the closest thing to a template that I do. And half the time I don't even do that. I still just put it all on there. One. By the way, man, I appreciate that. You might be the first person chewing tobacco on the podcast. Hey, that's pretty rock and roll, the old man. Cheek and gum. <laughs> yeah, you know, it beats roll. vaping. We're in Nashville. Um, okay, cool. So, um, and then what about ways that you like to mix? So you're mixing in Pro Tools. Do you like to sort of leave the computer and be on outboard stuff a lot, or? Once it's time to mix, do you, do you find that the computer kind of takes you most of the way you need to go? Um, lately, I've been leaving the computer for summing, but for a long time, like when I was cutting stuff at 79, I would take it home, mostly because of budget or whatever. And I thought I was crazy because I'm like, I'm going to the trouble to track this to tape and then I'm going to mix it in the box. This seems somehow unholy, you know? Unholy. And and then it was working really great. The wrong kind of unholy. It just wasn't, it, you know, I didn't need any more color, really. I had what I liked. Um, and But, you know, lately, so I'm pretty happy in the box with the UAD stuff, and I try to compress things as I go and do things as I record to get some flavor on it and then, you know, use a bunch of plugs and things. But I've been summing... Our A room has an SSL matrix in it, which is a 16 channel uh, SSL analog board you can mix through. And then uh, the B room, I have a fulcrum, 16 channel fulcrum. You ever seen those things? I know the name. So, yeah, tell us. It's a passive summing mixer, basically. And you got left, right, or center on one. Oh, yeah. You just hit the switches, right? And I just do pairs of left, right. And then you can use any pre wires, right? Yeah. It's just clean analog summing. And then you can. You have to gain it up at the end. You can put any preamp you want at the end to gain it back up in different colors. But I found these things called the JCF lever, and this guy built a dedicated summing amp for these. That um, It's just the cleanest, most open one. I, I started to figure out that I liked the cleaner preamps better on that end of things. My Rupert Neve Portico that's without the silk button in was kind of the coolest. And then this thing... Sounds to me more like a supposedly it makes it an active summing circuit somehow instead of a passive one. I don't know exactly how it works. It's supposed to have a zero ohm input. All I know is it doesn't work as a preamp. It just goes, but it sure sounds amazing on the end of that. So I've been doing that lately, but not every time, you know. And um, as I recall, the fulcrums are quite an affordable price point on something like that. Oh, yeah. Because it's it's just just wires in a box and good switches. Pretty much gold switches, wires in a box. And then I go through, I have a 2192. Each room we have a twenty one ninety two, you know, the old UA converter box right. that goes in and out, and then a twenty five hundred. Both rooms there, so that's sort of me and Leland. That's sort of our two bus. Now, did you guys intentionally try and match some of the stuff between rooms so that you can move from from one room to the other and have the same sound? Exactly. We we uh, like I so I was using an Apollo sixteen at home forever, and uh, 
it just when we moved into this place to have to move from the Pro Tools uh, HD to the Apollo, if you had to bounce over for overdubs and B, it was just like now you have this console app and all this stuff that's different and the punching's different. It it just made sense to get the same rig. Yeah. Uh, but the with the twenty one ninety two, I bought a second one because when the first one dies, they're they're not out there anymore. You know. Yeah. And so that's why I had a spare one of those. So it was like, oh, okay. Well, we now we got one in each room. You now know, buy a third. Um, I I had the pleasure of working with Tom Lord Algae years ago. I was producing a record and he was mixing it for us. And he said in his studio, when he found something that he liked and it was part of his um, setup, he'd try and get five of them. Okay, cool. <laughs> now, maybe we may not all be able to get five of something, but still, yeah. it was the idea that like, if this is going to become part of a critical part of my workflow, I'm never going to be without it. I'm going to make sure that I've got it. So uh, we talked about that a little bit with um, Russ Long too, just for live recording was redundancy as well. You know, mm-hmm. making sure that you've got a backup of whatever you're using. Those little black boxes are great for that. I don't know if you've seen that. For um, live recording, it's like a little backup. It does it to a yeah, little hard drive. I think I know about that. Was um, is that a new piece of gear? It's been out a few years. It's just one rack space black box, and it'll record to like a little hard drive on its own. And yeah. if power goes out, it's still rolling. So it's like your second your redundancy to yeah. We, so when we go to Bonnaroo, we you know I've taken the the backup battery pack, and and it's actually saved the computer from crashing in the middle. But we've like kind of scratched our heads a bit before about back. Well, should we, what, you know, if the power goes up and then one day I was like, wait a minute, if the power goes out, Nobody's that killed the take. Anyway, nobody's yeah. playing. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, so, all right. Uh, let's see. Um, we talked about acoustic guitars. Let's talk a little bit more about electric guitars. Um, when you're trying to record great sounding electric guitars, what are some of the things that you think most people are, might overlook and you want to t- remind them of? Um, on electric guitars? Yeah, maybe even if you've worked with um, less experienced bands and you feel like you have to educate on elements of like, this is how we get really great electric guitars in the studio. Well, I think working on it from the amp side first is is the biggest thing. Um, and so if you got somebody who's really inexperienced, if you can feel them out without offending them, you know, some people just don't want you to touch their amp and not going to... I remember kind of being like that when I was young, so... Not going to say too much. Yeah, but bad. this is different. That's the live stage because that's when the live sound guy comes up, and makes you turn it down. You're like, my amp. You're like, sound is good. <laughs> yeah, getting helping them get it from the amp is the best, you know. And you know, but also I've seen situations where a, a younger guy, you mentioned, kind of inexperienced. He, he told me he wanted something to sound like, like Neil Young, the song Alabama, you know. And it, that's a cool. I love that whole vibe and sound. There's some room stuff going on there, but the song was like this really up tempo, fast thing and we were talking earlier about room mics and electric guitars and it doesn't always work and like that just wasn't gonna and he saw it if you show it to them then they kind of usually just get it pretty quickly right sometimes people don't know and they're like well i love i love vanilla and i also love steaks let's just put this (laughs) vanilla on this steak you know that's actually how i cook at least at least they don't know until they know i should do that again Um, and that I've been putting a 57 lately. It's my this is my electric guitar lately. Leland has a 441, you know, that Sennheiser. And I put those and line the capsules up exactly together where it cancels out if you flip the phase on it. And that's sort of my new they're both uh, maybe a So what do you say Sennheiser 421? 441. 441 along the Stevie Nicks. Right, the silverish squarish ones, yeah. right? And then what was the the second mic? 57. Just 57 right next to that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So two dynamics. Mhm. 
lining up your capsules so that they're in phase. Or so if you flip them out of phase, they just cancel They'll out. Cancel. And then just relying on the difference in tone. Yeah, and blend those. And I don't really, I very rarely compress. Sometimes on an overdub, I'll compress an electric guitar a little bit on the way in. But uh, on tracking days, I don't do it to the rhythms. They kind of, if you got it cranked, it'll, I like the way it sort of compresses itself. Yeah. So, so when I started out, um, Brad Jones was kind of my mentor, you know, starting out over at Alex the Great. And he said that to me one day. He was like, no, it's already pretty compressed enough. And I remember that like it was a light bulb for me. I was like, what do you mean it's already compressed enough? We didn't put a compressor on it. Yeah. And then learning and and observing that tones that go into distortion are compressing. That's a form of compression. That's why we like distorted guitars, because all that compression of the sound uh, means that the little things we do with our pick and our fingers, you know, are a bigger deal. Yeah, and chugga, chugga, chugga. Those yeah. things are pretty... T- but for lead parts, a lot of times I'll compress them. Or slide guitar, I love to compress the hell out of that. That's yeah. through one and the other, you know? Yeah, sustain, gives you more sustain. Too. Yeah, where it goes when you stop, you know? All right, um, what about uh, anything we can talk about as far as tuning issues with guitars? Um, it's just a, a struggle. Um having it set up by somebody who knows what they're doing, like Joe Glazer. That's always good. Yeah. Joe's you know? hopefully coming on the show soon. Oh man. He's awesome. I mean, he's, you know, he's the, maybe the best. I send my stuff to him when I can. That's what I've done too. And just paying attention to it, you know, you're getting people used to it. I really like those little clip on tuners. Now the ones you stick on the head of the guitar, you don't have to run through some pedal, you know? And- yeah. That was a big change. Do you remember when, um, I, I noticed that there were less tuners around the studio once everybody just had an iPhone tuner. Everybody had yeah, iPhones. Yeah, the G-Strings was, like, was the one I had on my, uh, well, before I had an iPhone. I had, I had the like, other one. Yeah, it was just some session. I was like, hey, you know what? Nobody needs tuners anymore. You yeah. just got one. It's true. That and then the, the but the clip-on for me, that's like the best $20 I ever spent yeah. that changed my life. You know, you don't have to run through something that changes your tone. Although mine run out of batteries a lot. They don't, don't they always do. turn themselves off. So what I do is I just go on Amazon or eBay and I just order piles of those little, you know, silver watch batteries. Yeah. Watch batteries. Yeah. And then I don't worry about it anymore. I need to do that. Batteries. Rock stars. Don't get stressed out about batteries. Just order a lot of batteries and just make that part. Do the Amazon subscription if you need to, so that fresh double A's and nine volts are just always showing up in your studio. And then you'll, it makes you look really good and helpful to, to the band you're working with when they don't are missing a battery and don't have power for a, a pedal or something. And you're like, oh, we got one. You just grab a battery and hook them up, you know? Yeah. We got nine volts and double A's and triple A's out the ass. We don't have watch batteries. So thank you for reminding me. There you go. That's, now you got that it. That is something I need now to you have got a pile it. of. Um, all right, cool. So uh, I guess one of the things that I run into with, with tuning too is, again, intonation. And sometimes, you know, it's the session and it's like you can't inton- you can't send the guitar out. So um, learning, I feel as an engineer, learning how to intonate a guitar on a session has been really helpful for me. You can lose a half an hour on a session while you're doing it, but boy, does it make a difference when the, you go back to playing those guitar parts and everything suddenly sounds in tune. Yeah, and Gibsons are for me are easier to mess with than yeah. like Fenders can get. You got the little bitty. As long as you can access the little screw. Yeah, you the, got those little the, bitty uh, Allen wrenches on the end, and the Gibsons you can just t- twist those little wheels and pretty much get stuff rolling that way. Yeah. Uh, so Rockstars, we won't go into um, details of intonating guitars, but just suffice it to say that the uh, bridge end of the string, moving it, uh, making the string a little longer by moving the bridge towards the right or shorter towards the left, if you're a righty guitar player, 
mm-hmm. um, is the process of, of intonating the guitar and getting that right will make a huge difference. All right. Um, what's one of the most fun or difficult things about recording vocals with an artist? Um, the most fun is when they're really great and you just hit record and it's one of these things where it just sounds amazing. And they, you know, um, the most difficult is when people maybe don't have as much of a idea of what they want to do on this song. Uh, maybe they didn't write the song or maybe they just, it's brand new and it was really inspired and they brought it in really fresh and you got this fresh take, but they don't really kind of know where to, uh, where to go with it. And so, you know, that might take several, that might take a long time. They might have to sing a few times to get a roadmap. You can comp that. Um, I do a, I do a good bit of comping on the vocal end of things. That's the, that's the one spot. And I've learned that from my dad. He's a huge comper. Um, and, uh, so the vocals are somewhere that I'm not afraid to kind of get pretty anal with, uh, with that, you know, and spend a lot of time and, you know, really kind of work on those. It's sort of funny if you took this out of context and you didn't know what it was, sound like an insult. Yeah, my daddy's a huge copper. He's a big copper, man. He's a man. big copper. But, um, you know, I'm with you on that. And you talked about comping together a working track. It's a reminder that sometimes you have to go through a vocal, comp something together, and and that just gets you to the stage of allowing the singer and the artist to now understand the song. Yeah, kind of. And now they got to come back and sing it. Well, now they're going to say, again. "I can do better than that." Right, exactly. Like, you, do it, you know, and you're like, "Cool." So what what we'll do when I'm doing stuff with my dad is we'll we'll do that, comp it, we'll sing it like eight times and comp it. You know, maybe punch some parts they're having trouble with, and then they'll come back in and do that again, two rounds, and then comp the second round. But the first comp is part of what you're comping into a new comp, you know? Yeah. And after a couple of rounds of that, it really gets distilled into a, uh, you know, a fine thing. But then, then there's stuff like the Willie and the Giant deal where we just did it to tape and hardly punched anything. Right. You know, it just, it just depends on what you're going for. Now, what about getting the sound right for the vocals? Um, do you find there are some challenges as far as arriving at this is the right setup for the mic pre, the mic, the mic pre, the compression, the DS or whatever it is that you're using? to record it because you don't want to screw up those first takes if they turn out to be really magical, right? Yeah, that's a that's a something, you know, if I can, I like to mess with a few different mics at first to try to find what works, depending on how experienced they are. Uh, sometimes if they're fairly green, I, I really hate to have them getting bored. If I see them starting to get bored, I feel like I'm losing the battle and not doing my job. So I'm not going to make somebody wait forever. Um to get somewhere, but I would, if I, if budget allows and time allows, try a few different mics until you find the best one. And, uh, headroom's always something to fight, you know, like yeah. just certain pieces of gear will sound amazing, but then they really start screaming. Okay. That thing doesn't, it it's just going to crap out no matter what I do with it out or something. Yeah. So getting a few, and then there's a few things I know pretty much work. So if, if I'm in a pinch and I really just need to get this now, the performance, cause that's the most important, the performance, you know, to me is the biggest thing. Uh, then I'll kind of go to some of the go-to stuff. I find that, um, you know, we need to be reminded sometimes, don't be afraid to ask for something from the artist too. So let's say you've got a vocal sound and it's just killer on the verse, but it's just, just sounds, it sounds way too much power on the, the chorus or the loud notes or the high note or something like that. Instead of adjusting your settings and trying to make that your new threshold, you know, don't be afraid to maybe just let the artist know that on that certain line, it's a little powerful and, you know, you might want to work the mic. So 
that's what I've been doing lately. I don't try and explain what working the mic even means. I'm just like, you might want to just work the mic a little bit on that one. And they kind of know. They, they, and they it, just yeah. make it up. You know, they figure it out. They get closer like, and then they get right. further away. And it, that is that is huge when somebody kind of starts to learn that. You do try to try to help them gently with uh, with that. And then their tone, you can get them open your mouth more or close it a little more for this word. And you can kind of guide them because some word might sound really shrill tone wise without being that loud. It'll just get nasally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it helps to not have to fight it with. I mean, my vocal never does, but. Oh, mine. My vocal's just completely out of tune. (laughs) It's just awful. Um, All right, cool. And then, uh, yeah, groovy. So how about any cool tricks for mixing vocals? You, You talked about making records simpler back in the day. So I interpret that to mean you're, you're, you've learned more about doing more stuff yeah. in the process. What are some things that you enjoy doing now that you think are helpful? On mixing, vocals? on mixing vocals. Um, yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Also, um, tell us, give us some tips about comping vocals and, and Pro Tools. I know has, it, it keeps getting better and better at yeah. comping. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how your process is to comp through vocals and not turn it into like a, um, a mind fuck to just start dropping F-bombs on the podcast. Well, uh, yeah, it is a mind fuck, but, uh, there's no way around it, but, but, uh, no, generally, uh, I think the comp lanes thing, when they came out where you can see all your, your comp lanes, I don't know if that was Pro Tools 11 or 10 or 12, probably 11. That was a game changer for me. Instead of having to flip through all these pages, I can put it on playlist view and I can see them all and then just solo them all. And now when I'm lately when I'm recording vocals, I'll have that playlist view open. And so if we punch, say, the bridge a few times, then okay, now they want to do the first verse and work on that a little bit. Well, I can use one t- playlist where we had done the bridge and I can fi- I can see where the holes are in the playlist, if that makes any sense, and fill them all in and keep it to a lesser track count. You know, here's one thing that blows my mind. And it happens a lot, and sometimes I use it, but the duplicate playlist thing, you ever do that? Um, yeah, totally. And then you can, then you can now punch over stuff. Yeah. But, it, but then, but then know, you end up with a long list too of many duplicated of things. It drives not, me nuts to have you, 86. Sometimes the, the challenge for me is remembering which one is the top one. Or if you're comping from those, being able to tell that, you know, 80 of those are the same line. Yeah. And only three of and them you're are looking at this That's tiny right. number to try to see that kind of drives me nuts. So I'll try to keep the, the playlist count as low as I can, but sometimes if they want to punch over something and you don't want to they won't want to lose it. I don't mind punching over something. If it's not good, I'll just right. go over it. I don't, right. That's one less thing. Uh, what were we talking about? Mixing. Well, that was something I remember Steve Albini talking about years ago, which was like, um, you know, a, a band struggling with on tape going over something and doing something again. And then his question was along the lines of, well, I mean, if that one wasn't good, why do you want to keep it? Yeah. Why do you want to keep it if, it's, if you want to redo <laughs> that's it? That's which one, one is it? Why do you want to keep it? Yeah. Um, let's talk about this part about comping though. Uh, there is comping that equals zoomed in super close, super magnifying glass. And there's comping that equals, you know, sitting, lean back in your chair with a notepad and you're just kind of circling some lines or making a few notes. Um, talk about the difference between perspective on a vocal and, and getting it right and, you know, stuff that you find works for you. Well, okay, if I'm producing, I'm comping it and engineering it, so I'm the guy driving the rig and doing it while I'm doing the motor skills of Pro Tools. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm working with another producer, like, for instance, today my dad, he comps by looking at a comp sheet or he looks at the lyrics and writes out one, two, one through eight, and there's columns, you know, and you'll go through each line 
and then he checks so he checks off a you know and then he'll he'll make marks of everything he likes and I'll just stick them in there and edit them the complaints make that really easy um but the what I've seen and what I've kind of grown jealous of the advantage of that is he's not looking at the audio he's not looking at the screen or the blobs or cuz I don't know I mean I might like the color purple a lot and it might affect the way I perceive Don't call something. my recordings blobs <laughs> mine are blobs man <laughs> Uh, so, you know, comping without looking, that seems to help, but I don't have that luxury. So for me, I'm I'm just going through and I'll listen to every line basically. And I'll go down the list. If, like if know. there's four phrases on the first half of the verse, you'll comp one phrase at a one time. One phrase at a time usually. And uh, maybe I'll put little bitty, I'll get as microscopic as I think I need to get or as I can afford to get. Right. Uh, that's guess, one part where I'll get pretty, I'll get pretty anal with that, with the yeah. vocals. And I feel like that as a Pro Tools operator, that is one of the things that um, we get good at. We can feel, we can be guilty of feeling a little proud of our ability to swap out different syllables in a word and put them together. And people are like, wow, man, how'd you do that? You know? Yeah. But sometimes I wonder, it's like, how do we keep the perspective that we're doing the best thing for the song? And do you have you ever discovered moments where the zoomed in version arrived at a different conclusion than, you know, the, the charted out sitting back in your chair producing version. And one of those turned out to be the right choice or will we never know? Well, I, I will say they can zoom in too from back in the chair really far. They're just telling you to drive and you have to do it all. Yeah. You're a human mouse, but, but, uh, no, yeah. I've like, I did a honky tonk record recently with a guy named Jay Bragg and, and it was we had to knock it out quick. It was kind of low budget and great. So I didn't have the luxury of super zooming in on the comps, but he sang great and there's a lot of feeling to it. And so I enjoy that too. Like I enjoy it. There's a finite amount of time we have on this. Let's go through. We did fewer takes, right? We only did one round of the comps and, and trimmed a lot of the fat off this other process I described. And uh, yeah, when you're doing that, you risk choking the feel out of it a lot less, I guess. Um, and then there's the thing of when the singer gets tired, you just can't sing anymore. I mean, like after a certain point in the day, you've worn right. them out and you've beat yeah, them totally. up and they need to go totally. take a break. You know, there's that. Um, I hope that answered the question. I no, I think so. Yeah. Out. I mean, it's a it's a, a difficult question to answer and I've never arrived at an answer. I just know that there's a difference and I think it's good rock stars to be reminded that there is a big difference between what you experience when you're up close to the speakers and you're pushing buttons and looking at the screen versus what you experience if you're sitting in the back of the room and somebody else is pushing buttons. And I'd I've noticed it because I've I put myself in both positions. I'd like to be in the position of sitting further back with the pen and pad and it's pretty fun. It's a else bitch about. to communicate though. Yeah, that's the thing is you have to find a workflow where you understand what they're saying and it's Yeah, well just to try and tell somebody to press stop because usually it means by definition you're looking at the back of somebody's head who's yeah. um running the ship for you. And uh and I, I just I'm you can't see it over the podcast, but I do the little the little semi hand wave. That means like hit the stop bar, space bar, <laughs> space yeah. bar stop. Yeah, it's hard not to backseat drive another guy with Pro Tools too. I'm yeah. I, I'm trying to not be that, but I, I have it done to me sometimes too, or used to. Yeah, and then what's the uh, what's the code for uh, don't do anything, keep it rolling? Because I do like the spinning finger thing, mm -hmm. but it's so much. I'm doing so much that usually they they hit stop. And they're like, what What do you want? You yeah, know? I'm like, no, 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 let's keep it rolling and don't do anything. Yeah, because you say something and they don't can't make out what it is. Right. 
I thought you told me to stop. No, 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 let her keep going. She's doing great. Let's yeah. just finish. We were only going to get this verse, but now you want to, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. What or, yeah. We were only going to do this verse, but no, she's on a roll. Just or the worst going. is like, yeah, you're running Pro Tools and the producers and, and like the take, it's an incomplete take and you cleverly hit undo because you're like, well, I'm trying to be neat and organized and safe. Yeah. And then he's like, no, no, I wanted to keep that one. I saw that like, one happen oh, recently. Shit. Sorry, man. Uh, that happens. All right, so let's jump into some of our jam session questions and kind of close out here. Um, when you started out in recording, what was holding you back? Um, I, I think that the we're talking about Pro Tools and our crazy editing skills and all this, but that's what I think intimidated me at first. Like, well, it wasn't your dad. He wasn't like, Nick, if you don't clean your room, you'll never work in this town again. No, no. It was more <laughs> It was more like the as far as the engineering side of this and the producing side of it, because at some point I realized doing both was the thing I needed to do. And I and I but really the Pro Toolsness, the computerness, I was never a huge computer geek. And uh I wasn't sure I'd ever be able to you see these guys with all the quick keys, and I'm still not the greatest in the world with the quick keys i can just do i don't know you get good from doing it a lot at certain and you learn some of them and i got like a quick key um keyboard cover yeah and i still find that like some of those i use a bunch and some of them i just don't know if i'm ever going to use i I keep learning new ones every day you know i've learned a few new ones in this last week so it just accumulates but i guess i was kind of slow learning all that because it was uh i mean when i started out with pro tools i was hitting the little play button on the top right. Oh, yeah, you could yeah. still see it up there. Now they have it. No, oh, yeah, there it is. That's what and I do transport. when I'm using other DAWs. You really? Yeah, because yeah. I don't know which buttons to hit. hit. Record and then play like you would on a cassette or whatever. Yeah. So I didn't even know three then. You know, And I, your records were so thoughtful back then too. <laughs> you haven't heard any of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So um, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving? Um, uh, turn off your phone. Nico Bolas told me, turn off your phone when you're working. You will enjoy the musical difference. So Nico's not that excited about like, you know, remote control apps for your iPhone for Pro Tools. Oh, I'm sure he is. I'm sure he thinks it's the coolest thing ever. He's pretty high tech, but but when you're, you know, turning it off when you're tracking is huge. Like I don't need to be, nobody needs to bother me while I'm doing this. This is the the undivided attention. I need to, the client needs my undivided attention. Damn, it's enough to keep up with anyway, especially on a tracking day. So that was one. And, uh. If I'm not turning it off, I'm I'm I, I like being in the habit of upside downing it. It's, yeah. it's upside down and away from me. I don't and want to vibrate. Screen blinking at me or anything like that. Always vibrate. I don't think- uh, as a parent, there have been times where I feel like it needs to be. It can't be totally off. That's but understandable. Not always. I mean, it's off for a podcast interview. We just can't be interrupted right now, man. No, we're too important. We're delicate genii. Meteors flying at Earth aside, we can't be interrupted. We're during saving a the world, interview. man. One overdub at a time. Uh, Nick, um, Nico Bolas needs to come on the show. Nico, shout out to you. I'll ask him. I'm coming for you. Um, That'd be we, awesome. I'd listen he, to that. He did one of my favorite records. It was a Sal- Kevin Salem album that I really loved. I don't know if you ever listened to Kevin Salem. I've never heard that one. He's great. Super talented guy. Definitely as a um, replacements fan, you would enjoy his music. Okay. Too. All right. I'll check it out then. Um, all right, cool. So, uh, you know, I think we've talked about a lot of stuff, but is there another recording tip hack or secret sauce you might like to share with the rock stars something they could use on their their next session today. Um, I don't know if I have a secret trick or sauce, but I mean, for me, I think what works is again just having fun with it. Like, I think that I like to think that people enjoy being in my space and and the vibe and uh, the attitude, you know, and having uh, having everything together, having sharp pencils, and you know, a lot of this stuff we kind of learned at Blackbird, like 
just, you know, and then 79 has this too, just a pro attitude about the whole thing. If you need something, it's already there. You don't have to think about it. These musicians don't need to have to uh, futz around with, you know, mundane details. Right. That's what you the know. rehearsal space at back at home is for. Yeah. And it's not about them being prima donnas. It's not about, you know, ass kissing or whatever. It's just about not getting in the way of what you're trying to do, which is the creative thing. And the gear too. I can sit around and mess with gear and make somebody wait in the booth for an hour till I get the perfect thing. But at the end of the day, their performance is what we're trying to get. So it's really about them. Yeah. I mean, I sort of the thing that pops to mind about uh, sharp pencils and things being ready is if you're a musician, just go in and record yourself and you'll get pissed off about some stuff really having fast. Having to walk across the room to find a pad. You yeah, know? just write it down. Every time you you try and do something and then you step on your headphone cable and it rips your headphones off your head and it punches mm-hmm. you in the nose because you're trying to grab a cable. The cable won't reach from the headphone box and you're 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 tethered. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff just take a note. Way that take a needs note. to just be taken care of if you can. Yeah, they, uh, We're in a service industry if we're making records for other people and they've, they've uh, paid us for this, so... Or even if you're doing it for free for them, you know, whatever. Just uh, we're, we're trying to have the the purpose of making it easy for them to make music. That's what I was getting at, the service industry end of this. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, how about uh, any other kind of a hardware tool for the studio that you're excited about today? Something you've been checking out lately? Um, lately, I love, I, I love the Power Strip is still a favorite. Um, Tube Tech is a great compressor to track vocals with that ends up on vocals a whole lot uh my 2500 all my mixes go through an api 2500 i just love that and i listen through that during the whole overdub process because i know the end of the rainbow the api 2500 is a stereo compressor stereo compressor yeah so that's a that's a key piece of hardware for me and leland both um that 2192 converter oh man and the cappies I got, I've already talked about right. a lot yeah, of this yeah. stuff. Great. Right? Yeah, no, totally. Well, it's good to have a little reminder there. <laughs> oh, I love talking about it. Um, software stuff. Anything you're excited about in the software world? Are there any plugins that, le- in the same way that you're always going through that API 2500, maybe you always sort of like to have these plugins up maybe during the tracking stage? Uh, or is tracking mostly just a big mostly, blank tape machine? Yeah, I try to not use plugs at all during tracking. I might throw a little EQ on something or whatever on a piece, but it's going to be the Pro Tools stock EQ, anything that won't cause latency or deverb, you know, something yeah. that won't make it latent. Uh, and is that even a way to say it? But um, Don't be latent. <laughs> but uh, as far as recent plugins I've gotten into, um, the Seventh Heaven Reverb, have you tried this thing? No, not yet. Liquid audio or liquid something. I think that it's the Bracasti some I think the Bracasti guy finally gave his blessing, um, and a guy named Kevin Harper turned me on to it. And uh, it. through Clark Schleicher, those guys are sort of plug in. It gets filtered through them and suggested to me, and it's pretty well vetted by that point. So that one's Seventh Heaven. It's modern, and it kind of is really clean and just a beautiful reverb that you know you can hide it in a track if you want to. I love big beautiful reverbs. Um, a couple that are, have been favorites of mine lately are the um, the Lexicon PCM oh, yeah. series, which I got, and Chad Brown had recommended those to me. And then um, the uh, Exponential Audio; those are those Never are heard of that gorgeous. One. Yeah, really gorgeous. Very flexible, lots and easy to. You can arrow your way through all the settings on the keyboard so you can quickly flip oh, nice. through reverbs and stuff. Nice. Um, cool, man. Right on. Well, uh, how about um, anything for the business side of doing this? If you want to do this for more than just a hobby, 
Is there any advice or a resource people should be thinking about? A good invoicing platform or software. I, I've found this one called Wave Apps, and uh, it's free and it's online based. And it works great. It's and Leland's using it too, and uh, it's just kind of what we're using at the studio, and that's been uh, a game changer. I was paying for some other one that wasn't as good as this one, and it's free. Okay, so, cool. Wave, wave apps. Wave apps. All right, dig it. <laughs> um, how about uh, organizational um, tips or resources? Anything to help us keep all our shit together? Having a printer. You know, that's one thing I didn't used to have at my home studio at one point, and once I got a printer. You can print out charts and everybody needs paper printed stuff. Printers, and I use manila uh, envelopes, manila folders and paper clips. And okay. That's kind of how I keep my stuff. Does my each session have its own doc manila sheets. envelope or something like that? Yeah. You know, each little uh, tracking date will end up with a with an envelope full of notes for all those songs, which will have recall sheets for the vocals and lyric sheets and comp sheets and uh Whatever else, man. You know, so I'm, I'm a Manila folder weirdo. I like to keep Manila stuff in and there. steak. Manila and steak, yeah. <laughs> you know, I like them both. Why not put them together? <laughs> All right, cool. Um, yeah, I dig that. Uh, um, the my, the folder system I've been using here is uh, I kind of picked that up from Alex the Great, which was uh, the studio I was at, and it was just like just pull out a file drawer and have a bunch of files, and so I'd um, you know have a Manila file folder and just write the name of an artist put in there. It's, it's alphabetized at some point, you know, you got to like, it's, it's too full of old junk, but it is that's nice my to next keep purchase. organized. I'm, I'm going to buy one of those file cabinets and that's, that's already, I've already planned because the manila folders need to go. They need to go somewhere. In those things with the tab. When you said manila folders, I immediately thought of those cardboard bank boxes that you buy and then you can put them in taxes. So like when they get too full, you just like pop together a little cardboard bank box, throw the manila guys in there and, now you got a closet full of blank bank boxes, or maybe they can become bass traps in your studio. As you know, open them up and it's a different sound. All those all those folders will deaden up all year. All right. So, um, how about this? Is the last two questions, and then we'll be done. Um, this one is hypothetical. Just imagine you were starting all over in a new place, and you needed a simple setup to record. You needed to find people to record and make music with, and you needed to figure out how to make ends meet to survive. What do you think you'd do or what advice would you give to somebody who was in that situation now? Um, am I broke? How much money do I like uh, do just, I have a job? You're not rich, but okay. you've got you've got student income, let's say. Okay. Okay. Um so I'm moving to a new town. I got this thing going. I guess I would get like a uh some sort of 002 or whatever number they're on, 00 something, you know. And uh and a 57, you know. And uh if if we're going super simple, 57. And um, I'd go around to, to clubs and see bands play. You know, I'd go around to, to uh, bars and hang out and check out musicians and offer to, you know, I'd try to find some sort of space to work in, be it an apartment. I mean, I started out in a like a spare bedroom of an apartment. Uh, it'd be back to that, you know, and I'd still be doing it. Um, so, 57, such a great mic. I remember the first yeah. time somebody loaned, loaned me one. I was had my four track and I don't even know what I had, but he was like, you should try this mic. And he handed me an SM57. I took it home and I was just like, holy shit, this sounds amazing. They're great. It's, a good, it's, it's really funny that, um, you know, today is, if you handed me an Elam 251 or something, I'd be like, oh my God, what a mic. You know, we might assume, you know, we might make the jokes about 57s can be used great for hammers and stuff like that because they're that tough. 
But at that point, it was like hearing that mic was the first time I heard a mic where I was like, wow, this really sounds good. And it's because it really does. Yeah. <laughs> I think it beats the hell out of a 58 for just about anything. I don't know why. 58's all kind of muffly to me. Yeah. 58s are funny mics. They they really sound great um, in the right situation, but a 57 is the one that seems exciting. Yeah, it really does. It's just mid-range-tastic. Yeah. Mid, <laughs> mid-tastic. Yeah. All right. Um. And then uh, what about and finding people? What about making ends meet? What, what do you think is like, do you feel like uh, the only choice is uh, eat beans and, and make records? Or do you feel like it's okay to deliver pizzas? And, uh, you know, should somebody be driving an Uber around town? What? Oh, yeah. What's a good choice for people? Oh, you gotta you gotta start out doing something to pay the bills. I used to, when I was in bands, it was landscape jobs. For some reason, that was always the, you know, outdoors, moving around. Uh, I could make my own schedule. So it was like I could leave town three or four days a week and play, you know, things that have a loose schedule. Uh, you know, the Uber thing, hell, if just a short few years ago, I was about to start kind of doing that between slow times. Um, but uh, I, you know, then I got busy. But yeah, it's great to have something else to uh, supplement it until you get to a point where you at least take a good swing at it because it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. <laughs> You know, it's not easy at all. Well, you know, I think a nice thing about doing the um, the rideshare kind of stuff or being in a coffee shop in the right kind of place, for me personally, I don't think working in a bar is the right environment because I think I'm I'm just going to shift my schedule too much. Yeah. I mean, I've seen yeah. too many people like, you know, go that direction and maybe not come back yeah. for their dreams. But um, But if it works for you, great. But I do have a friend right now who's a client or an artist who uh, has got a record he's put out and he's driving Uber um, and doing that. And he's he's a real go-getter. And he says when he gets in the gets in to go for a drive, he always grabs four vinyl records of his record, parks him in the seat in between them, and it strikes up a conversation with most people. Cool. And, and he and he'll sell like four records on every drive. That's a about. great attitude. That's <laughs> it's a just great pretty amazing. way to go about it. And yeah, because with the Uber, from what I'm hearing, you got to be a go-getter and get after it too. It's not like, it's not. It's not passive money. There's no easy money, yeah. really. Uh, but yeah, I've I've known guys to do that Uber stuff, and the more outgoing of them, and the more gregarious they are, the better they seem to really like it and get yeah. get at it. You know. So I imagine if you're. Um, Oh, and then there was a, another buddy of mine, uh, Bjorgvin. I think it was no, it was Chris Salim from um, uh, Mixdown Online. When we were at Winter Nam, he was taking a ride, and his driver got in a conversation, and his driver showed him that he was making music on GarageBand on his iPhone. And so then Chris, like you know, included that on in a video on YouTube, and everything helped give him a shout out. But I think that if you're making records, you know, and you're you you certainly want to drive in the area of town where people might be musicians. Yeah, well, which is pretty people. much any area of town here. Right, exactly. I mean, I've had I've had engineers pick me up. Oh yeah, I know you. You work over at so and so. You know, like I've had a bunch of and everybody. There's a lot of music people that'll that you know you end up riding with. Yeah, and I remember when we um, when I started out. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember if I asked how old you are, but when I was beginning this, you know, uh, the the ninety one through the nineties, cartage is still a thing in Nashville, but it was a much bigger thing. I feel like yeah. back then. And that was a place to start out. So Cartage Rockstars is you might get a first job where your job is to um, haul the gear and the drums and the amps and things from storage to the sessions, set them up and back again. And by definition, you're walking in and out of studios all day and you're meeting musicians and you're just crossing paths with people. And 
even going out to see shows. It's all about just putting yourself in an environment, right, where you're crossing paths with and meeting other people in the industry that you're interested yeah, in. Yeah, like the rental gig I did is pretty much same thing. You know, yeah. delivering stuff to, I got to know people in all the different studios. I got to know gear and and learn, you know, learn from a whole lot of different people and see different ways of doing it. It was a wonderful, wonderful, formative uh, Yeah, thing. cool place too. One yeah. of a kind kind of place. Yeah, and working for Roth and Mike was just amazing. Like great people. Um, all right, so final question. This is hypothetical as well. We're going to take the Wayback Studio Machine. You're going to go back and find young Nick Worley riding his big wheel around the recording studio with his dad's <laughs> sessions. Maybe not that far back. <laughs> I don't think they allowed big wheels. Um, oh, sorry, Green Machine. <laughs> Maybe I'm dating myself too far back here. But um, you're going to go back, tap yourself on the shoulder, say, I've come back to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day, what what advice would you go back and give yourself if you could? Uh, you're going to want to be an engineer at some point in your life, so start doing it now. <laughs> put that guitar down, son. No, not put it down, but like get involved over in this side of it too. Uh, but, you know, I don't really have any regrets. I, I can't help it that I wasn't super into that side of it yet. Uh, but, yeah, if there was a way to kind of, if that situation happened hypothetically, it'd be like, go ahead and get over and start with this because then you'll be way ahead of yourself you Yeah, know, where you are now. But it's all good, man. Yeah, right on. Well, I remember when I was interning, um, my boss at the internship, I was you know, telling him I couldn't be around for something on a weekend. I had a gig up in St. Louis with my band. I was so excited about it, but he asked me at one point, he's like, what do you want to be? You want to be a musician or an engineer? And I felt so conflicted about it. Which side of the glass, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, that sucks. I didn't know I had to choose. Yeah. Well, you kind of don't. Turns out I didn't know anything about any of the stuff anyway. <laughs> you can do both kind of, but it, yeah. it, it's, uh, I, at some point the focus became this side of the, you know, the control yeah. room side of things for me. Uh, yeah. Cause it was just, I had to learn all of it and, you know, but I love it. I love both sides. I think I like this side better though. <laughs> you know, I like them both. Yeah. I love, love them both. Whatever side I'm on, I probably just want, I'm like, hey, I want to think I want to get on the other side for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Nick, thanks so much for being here on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. It's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you. Um, can't wait to come over and see your studio myself. Anytime. Sometime soon. Uh, let the Rockstars know how they can find you, learn more about you, check out your studio. All right. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had a great time with you, Lich. No, let the Rockstars yeah. know how they can find you online. Weathermansound.com. And then okay, I'm on cool. Facebook, Nick Worley. I'm not hard to find. Instagram. Uh, W-O-R-L-E-Y. That's Rockstars. correct. All right, great, man. Thanks, dude. We'll see you around the studio. Thank you, Lich. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.